You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about two of the categories from this year's reading challenge. First up, Britta and I will talk a little bit about rereading, an old favorite. Then we have two author interviews. I'll talk to Emily St. John Mandel, author of The Glass Hotel, which was a KCLS Best Book of 2020. It's now out in paperback. And uh, Emily is also the author of Station Eleven, which is a personal favorite of mine that I'm hoping to reread this year. And then I'll talk to Kira Jane Buxton. She wrote Hollow Kingdom, which was also one of our best books for 2019. It's about a crow named ST and his bloodhound friend Dennis, among many other things. So it's a great fit for the category, read a book with a non-human character. So as we alluded to in the first episode of the season, when we were announcing challenge categories, we're not really rereaders. No, not at all. I think because of our jobs, like I feel like there's always something else that I am trying to read so I can share it, you know, on the podcast or in a column or on the website or on our social media. Part of our job is helping people discover new books. And so we're always on the lookout for new books. Uh, So this rereading is going to be kind of interesting. Have you had a chance to do that to reread yet this year? You know, I totally intended to go back and revisit The Plague by Camus, but it turns out that like I didn't need any more existential dread in my life. I will say I put this category in the challenge this year sort of thinking of rereading as a source of comfort. So a lot of last year when I would ask people like how are you reading? You know, has the pandemic changed your reading life? More people than ever told me, oh, I'm rereading. I'm going back to things that are familiar. I'm going back to something where I know I'm going to get my happy ending or just something that feels like like sort of coming home. Um, so Camus was not exactly what I was thinking of. Although, as always, like I encourage people who are doing the challenge to interpret the categories in the way that works for them. So if you decide you want to revisit Camus in 2021, more power to you. Have you had any thoughts about what you might choose for your reread this year? Yeah. So instead of rereading, something I often do is try to find more books by an author that I really love or something in a similar like category or theme. And I needed some help with that recently. So I reached out to Bookmatch. And Bookmatch actually reminded me of a book that I loved in high school. I was looking for spooky, supernatural mysteries. And I was primarily interested in audiobooks. But they couldn't help but mention that I would probably love something that's impossible to read as an audiobook, which is called House of Leaves. Did you ever read this book? I have not. I'm not much of a horror reader. So tell me what it is. It is a puzzle box of a book. And I fell in love with it in high school. It was pitched to me as like deeply weird. It's by a person named Mark Z. Danielewski, who, uh, by the way, is the brother of that like angsty 90s girl musician Poe. Just only added to the allure. And it is... On the surface, uh, sort of like moving in to a spooky old house family drama, but it's a uh-huh. story within a story within a story that is formally quite experimental. It is the fictional manuscript that has been cobbled together from notes of a person who has died and left this manuscript behind in a house. And it is found by the editor who has included all of these footnotes, which tell an entirely different story 
And the manuscript is about a documentary of a family moving into this house and all of the strange things that happen. And then there's an appendices, which is an entirely separate epistolary novel that you can like go down a rabbit hole and decoding all of these messages. So there's a lot huh. going on there. <laughs> and then there's a word for this, and I might mispronounce it. So I'm sorry if I do. Um, it's, it's referred to as ergodic literature. Never heard that word. It means that you have to do a calculation to create meaning that extends beyond the ordinary bounds of what we normally think of as reading. So what does that look like in this book? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned what does it look like because it's much easier to understand visually. I wish I could show you some of the pages. Um, But the way that the novel uses words and like text ink and pages is so inventive. Some of the pages might remind you of say like a concrete poem by E. Cummings in the sense that like the typography also becomes images. You might have to like turn it around uh-huh. following the text. And it's it's very much like a labyrinth. It reminds me of Labyrinths by uh, Jorge Luis Borges. I'm wondering if I go back and reread it, knowing what I know sort of about its postmodernist tricks, like will it still be as haunting and exciting as the first time I read it? And it's been about 20 years. So I think I've forgotten almost all of like the plot points <laughs> beyond the initial premise. So it might like be able to surprise me. That's one of the things that I think is so great about rereading is that inevitably rereading a book is different experience than reading it the first time, right? So like you're saying like all this time has elapsed and you have forgotten the plot points, but you kind of know some of them and you'll be, you know, revisiting it with a whole couple of decades worth of life experience and thinking about literature uh, than you had when you first reread it as a high school student. I'm thinking about the first time I read Great Gatsby, I was, I don't know, like in eighth grade or something. And it was one of those things where it was like, yeah, technically I can read the words on the page here. And I was trying to be, you know, like a impressive eighth grader. But I remember just being like, what? Why do people like this book? And I came, I reread it uh, in my mid 20s. And obviously, it was an extremely different experience for a, you know, someone who is like 25 than it was for a 13 year old. I think there's, there's a whole different conversation to be had there about like, how we choose literature for young people and what's the difference between like the ability to read the words and the ability to sort of like get the themes. But I think there's something really powerful about revisiting something with a different set of life experiences under your belt. Yeah. A part of why I'm excited to revisit House of Leaves is that because it deals with epistemology and semiotics and has all of these deep footnotes and illusions, I think there's so much I missed the first time as a 14-year-old that will either... I've, I've read all those books that they're talking about now and will like get it more. Um, and there are so many different readings of this particular book that there will inevitably be something fresh to see. But I'm a little bit worried about <laughs> the the narrative voice of the editor because from my memory... He's a kind of like misogynist jerk. And I'm not so sure how well that will age. 
I reread The Glass Hotel to talk to Emily St. John Mandel. So it was a pretty different sort of reread than when I reread The The Great Gatsby because I first read The Glass Hotel when it came out a year ago. Obviously, like I didn't have the sort of change in my in myself that I did. It's, it wasn't 20 years later. It was like 13 or 14 months later, but it was still a very different reading experience because I'm such a plot reader. Like I just, it's one of the reasons that I love mysteries and romance is because I'm, I'm propelled through a book by the plot. It's one of the reasons I struggle with nonfiction. It doesn't mean that I don't care about other things, but it's just really hard for me to slow down if I'm drawn in by the plot. And I like to be drawn in by the plot. But I had already read The Glass Hotel and I knew what the plot was and I knew where the ending was going. And so it let me sort of think about different parts of the book. Like it let me see the themes a little bit more and, you know, knowing what was coming let me find connections that I didn't see the first time, partially because I didn't know what was coming. And also just again, because I was like, okay, but what's going to happen? What's next? So I think it's just a really like, no matter how much time has elapsed, I think it's a really interesting experiment to reread something. I wish that I had time to do it more, but like we said, like, it's just kind of a, a function of our jobs that we don't have a lot of space in our reading lives to reread. So it's fun that it's on the, on the list this year. Cause it's encouraged me to do that, but I'm excited to hear how it goes for patrons. And I'm excited to hear what you think of house of leaves when you, when you have a chance to get back to it. So we would love to see what you're reading. And one way you can do that is by tagging us on Instagram, on Twitter, anywhere you follow us and send us a picture and let us know what it is that you're revisiting. So you can follow us all across social. We've got a Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at KCLS and our Instagram account is at King County Library. Yeah, we'd love to hear from readers uh, and hear how rereading is going for you. here with Emily St. John Mandel, author of The Glass Hotel. For listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us a little bit about it? The Glass Hotel is honestly the most difficult to describe of all the books I've ever written. You know, my, with my previous novel, Station Eleven, I could say, well, it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. But with The Glass Hotel, what I've been going with lately is that it's a ghost story. It's also a story about a massive white-collar crime. And it's also got a lot about international shipping. And I realize that doesn't sound riveting. It's a very hard book to describe. It is a hard book to describe. And as I was putting together my questions for you, I was trying to figure out how I could talk about it sort of without spoiling it. Although because the the way that it unfolds is sort of not linear, spoilers aren't even necessarily really a thing. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. The woman falls off the container ship on page two, but at the end you, you figure out why, you know, why and how she, she fell off that ship. You, you said it's about shipping. And I think it's so interesting because in a lot of ways, the shipping industry has this huge impact on our daily lives, but it's largely invisible for a lot of people. But it's central, not just to The Glass Hotel, but it also plays a big part in your last novel, Station Eleven. How did you get interested in shipping and why do you like writing about it? You know, it just came from this random article that I came across. And it was a piece that ran in the Daily Mail. I think the title was... 
revealed the ghost fleet of the recession or something like that. The author's name was Simon Perry. And it just described this really strange haunting situation where, you know, the way the shipping industry is set up, there isn't really a parking lot. You know, ships are in constant motion. They just never stop. Mm-hmm. But what happen, What happens during an economic downturn is that, of course, there's much less demand because if nobody's spending money, then the goods don't need to come from China to North America, for example. So there was a huge overcapacity problem. And back in 2009, the solution that some shipping companies came up with was to park these massive container ships. I want to say it was about 100 miles south of Singapore Harbor. So from the perspective of the people who lived around there in this fishing village, they looked out one night. And the horizon was a blaze of lights, all of these ships that had just arrived and were just sitting there, not moving for days and weeks and months. Hmm. And some of them were a little bit afraid. You know, they they worried that there was something a little bit ghostly about them, Uh, which was frankly understandable when you saw the pictures. You know, it looked like a sort of abandoned fleet way off on the horizon. So I think I was just struck by that image. And then... As I read more about it, I was really struck by what you just alluded to, which is the combination of immense scale and invisibility that we don't really notice shipping because we don't have to. You know, our bananas arrive on our breakfast table. Um, but that banana was piloted through the Panama Canal. You know, uh, there are people involved in, in moving all of these goods. And uh, yeah, so it's just become this oddly invisible part of our economy that's also an enormous part of our economy. So I think that's what interests me in it. Um, I don't know that I would write a third book that featured the shipping industry, <laughs> but <laughs> it would be interesting, you know, for a couple of projects. So that invisibility is kind of a theme in the novel in a couple of ways, um, especially uh, this idea that there are these cultural currencies, mostly money in the case of the Glass Hotel, but also beauty that can give people invi- give people visibility. But there are other ways that people can sort of become invisible, not having money or sort of these service jobs that s- several characters find themselves in, bartending, housekeeping, even like being an administrative assistant. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how characters in the novel experience is- invisibility as both powerful and kind of um, agency stripping? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, invisibility will let you fly under the radar and go unnoticed. The day job that I had up until a year after Station Eleven came out was I was an administrative assistant in a cancer research lab at the Rockefeller University. And I remember one day the philanthropist who had funded the opening of the lab came to visit. And that was a big deal. You know, he'd given a lot of money to the university. Um, By that time, I was publishing novels. So my boss introduced me as a novelist and the philanthropist could not have been more lovely or interested. He started telling me all about his daughter who was attending. um, I can't remember what she was doing, but it was some sort of arts degree uh, at a university. And then a few months later, that same philanthropist visited again. This time my boss wasn't there. So I was just an administrative assistant and he literally couldn't see me which I found fascinating. You know, I tried to catch his eye just to say good morning and his eye just kind of slid right over me. Um, you know, like I was part of the office furniture, which just kind of fascinates me as a phenomenon, the way classism can lead to this really kind of interesting invisibility. 
And, you know, I'd say the way it plays out most clearly in the novel is probably the character Simone. The uh, the criminal, Jonathan, employs a staff who's dealing with logistics of perpetuating a massive crime. Everybody's in on it except for the new receptionist. Um, she's not in on the crime and yet he has her shredding evidence because he kind of can't see her. Like he can't quite wrap his head around the idea that this is actually a person who might actually understand that some of the documents she's shredding are incriminating, but to his eye, she's kind of part of the office furniture. The other person that I was thinking of with this is um, Leon, who goes from being the shipping executive to living in what he calls the shadow country, which is not just invisible people, but sort of this whole invisible economy. People don't even see, you know, the people packaging things in warehouses or working behind the desk at the Marriott. Yeah, I think that we don't want to see those people. I think for those of us who don't feel like we're on the margins of society, you know, who are kind of doing okay, we're afraid to see those people who are really struggling. Because if we can be honest here, you know, for all of the great things about living in this country, there's not much of a social safety net. You can fall really pretty far, pretty fast in the United States, you know, relative to a Canada or an Australia or much of Western Europe. Um, so I think it scares us, you know, when we see the tents under the expressway or we see people in our cities who are collecting cans that they're going to turn in for the refund, you know, to survive. Or, you know, even like a rung above that on the socioeconomic ladder, people who are, yeah, behind the desk at the Marriott or or washing your dishes at the restaurant. I think that people who are doing okay in this economy, you know, that they're kind of afraid to see those people because they're afraid that could be them, that, you know, it would not take too many steps, um, too many moments of misfortune to, uh, to find yourself in a very compromised position in this country. Yeah. That, that kind of touches on one of the other themes that I noticed in the glass hotel, which is this idea about potential stories and the way that a single decision or a moment can change the course of a life. So I pulled this quote. Um, she was struck sometimes by a truly unsettling sense that there were other versions of her life being moved without her, other Vincents engaged in different events. Can you talk about that idea of other stories and other lives and how it kind of shows up in the novel? Absolutely. Yeah, that's an idea that fascinates me. Um, that's the counter life in the novel, your counterfactual life, which is to say the life you didn't live. And you you could think of that in terms of the fairly large decisions you made in your life. Um, you know, imagine what your life is if you married a different person or if you emigrated instead of staying or vice versa, or if you went to a different college. But then if you, you can even break that down much further to tiny moments that changed your life. I, I remember a moment in Toronto when I was probably 21, when I I was out for a walk. I remember it was a really beautiful afternoon and kind of on a whim, I picked up a copy of one of the alt weeklies in Toronto and I read a review of a novel, which led me into correspondence with the novelist who became my boyfriend. And like, to make a long story short, that began a chain of events that, that takes us to this moment where I'm living in New York city and I'm married to my husband who I would not have met without that that novelist. And, you know, we have a daughter who would not exist, you know, without that chain of events. And it all comes back to the moment of choosing to pick up a newspaper on a street in Toronto. So, you know, I'm just fascinated by that idea that 
there are sort of countless shadow versions of your life. We, we tend to think of ghost stories in these kind of classic terms, you know, like the specter wafting down the hallway in the Victorian mansion, like that kind of thing. But imagine the idea that your life is haunted by the ghosts of the lives you didn't lead. Yeah. And I think for readers who read Station Eleven and then read The Glass Hotel, there's even some of that too, because the characters, there are characters from Station Eleven in The Glass Hotel living sort of their other ghost lives. There's a little yeah. line about the Georgian flu and how it's contained, uh, which obviously is not what happens in Station Eleven. Um, so I love that not only did you explore it sort of in the world of this novel, but tied it back as well. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I really appreciate you picking that up because I know that confused a lot of people. I've, uh, I've seen a couple of really nice reviews of The Glass Hotel but there will be a line in there that says something like, and this is set in the years before the Station Eleven pandemic. <laughs> but, um, you know, for anybody who's thinking about reading The Glass Hotel, I promise that it is 100% pandemic free. The, uh, the flu isn't coming. <laughs> so speaking of the pandemic, I know that Station Eleven was in the process of being adapted for television. And I imagine that the filming of that was impacted by the pandemic. If you want to talk about irony, the uh, yeah, the pandemic miniseries was interrupted by an actual pandemic. I was just Zooming with the showrunner the other day and they're actually resuming work. Uh, the production's going forward in Toronto. Well, that's exciting. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching it. And I wonder, what's it been like for you to think about Station Eleven, which is set, of course, during a fictional global pandemic, sort of in the midst of a real one? Has it changed the way that you think about that work? I think one thing that I didn't think about when I was writing Station Eleven is the idea that being in a pandemic isn't always a binary state. And what I mean by that is I'd read a lot about the history of pandemics. And I think despite all of that research, I kind of thought of it as being like, you're either in or you're out. Like you're either in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. But I'm kind of haunted by the period when the pandemic is kind of almost there, but not quite, which was exactly a year ago for New York City. You know, a year ago this month, we were hearing these terrifying stories from China and then it was starting to appear in Italy. We were concerned. We were following it closely. Cases had appeared in Seattle, but we were still taking our kids to school and we were still getting on the subway and shaking hands with strangers. And it was this very strange kind of interlude where we were kind of in and kind of out. And that was something that I just hadn't really thought about before, you know, when I was writing Station Eleven. And then another thing that I find kind of striking thinking about the book now, we're living in this era of alternative facts, you know, where information is so siloed and where different people can live in totally separate realities, depending on what news they consume. So in Station Eleven, there's that moment when all of the airplanes are grounded. Um, a flight is diverted to this regional airport in northern Michigan. The, uh, the passengers get out and they gather below a, a new like a TV news monitor. I think it's CNN. And they believe what they're seeing. And like that was completely plausible when I wrote it in, uh, mm -hmm. let's say, like 2011. But if you try to map that onto our current moment, half the people watching would say it was a liberal conspiracy. Everybody would be on Twitter. Like it's just uh, it's just much more chaotic now than it was then. So, yeah, that's something that kind of reads as implausible now, just as a reflection of the way the world's changed. What you were saying about sort of the 
like liminal space at the beginning of a pandemic before Mm -hmm. it's really the pandemic. It reminded me of a line in The Glass Hotel where I think it's Miranda who says like tragedy becomes boring or a catastrophe becomes boring as, as you're living in it. And she's talking about this financial collapse. You have the initial run on banks and it feels like a big deal and then it just keeps happening and you sort of get used to living with it. And I think that's something that I have really noticed as we're going into now, like you said, like it's about we're heading into sort of year two of the pandemic. And it it almost is like, it's amazing what you can kind of get used to. Yeah, absolutely. I've had the same thought. Um, And a question I've gotten over the past year has been, well, are you able to work? And at first I really wasn't because in New York last spring, it was just constant ambulance sirens. It was really hard to focus. But the bigger issue was shock, honestly, that, you know, just this mm-hmm. kind of incredulity, like, how is this happening? How is this possibly real? At this point, we're kind of used to it, which actually scares me a little bit. I, I start each day by looking at the previous day's COVID numbers for New York City, which is not a great habit, by the way. It's probably super unhealthy. But <laughs> I do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But you find yourself thinking, okay, well, yesterday wasn't so bad. There were only 3,678 new cases and only 72 people died. It's kind of horrible, isn't it? What you can get used to. Yeah, it's, it's kind of astonishing. Um, going back to, we were talking about Station Eleven being adapted for television. Um, I read that you wrote a pilot for an adaptation of The Glass Hotel. How was writing for television different from writing a novel? Um, It's so different. It's so collaborative, which I didn't realize I was missing because, you know, to be honest, one of the things I've always loved about writing a novel is just the kind of quiet and privacy of it, the way it's something you kind of do on your own time. Um, You know, you just close yourself in a room and disappear into this magical world that you're creating. But Writing for television, it's so collaborative in a way that I found really fun. So, you know, I've been working with a writing partner. You know, we just send scripts back and forth. I'll write a terrible draft. She'll send it back magically 50% better. I'll make some changes and send it back to her. And it's just really fun in a way I hadn't expected. I have to say, it's also given me a new level of respect for just the way that different forms have different dramatic requirements. So, you know, as readers, we're all familiar with that thing where you see the screen adaptation of your favorite book and you're like, wow, they they were so off. It's totally different from the book. Uh, Yeah, because it had to be, you know, because Mm -hmm. TV and movies have totally different dramatic requirements. Every scene has to be charged with tension. So yeah, it's given me a new understanding of, of why it's always different. So this interview will be part of an episode of the podcast where we talk about rereading favorite books. Are you a rereader and are there old favorites that you like to revisit? You know, I very rarely reread books. Um, I, I just have this feeling like there are so many books and so little time. And I, you know, mm-hmm. every book I reread is a new book I'll never get to. But there is one exception to that. And that's a novel called Monkey Beach by Eden Robinson. And I think she's brilliant. Th- that novel, it's a coming of age story set in British Columbia. There's a kind of sense of hauntedness in it, which it's very different from my book. You know, the source of that sense of hauntedness in Monkey Beach goes back to indigenous stories about the land. Um, But yeah, it's just the most striking, riveting, beautifully written, mysterious book. And that's a novel that I've read at least three times. And then we always like to ask, what are you reading now? 
I'm reading a book called Journey by Moonlight. It's a really interesting novel. It was written in, I want to say 1937. It was right before war broke out in Europe. And the author was traveling around Europe with the understanding that that wouldn't be possible for very much longer. You know, war was obviously imminent by that point. So the novel's not about war, but it does have this atmosphere of dread, which I don't know, maybe that particularly speaks to me at the moment, <laughs> living through a pandemic. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautifully written book. I've been trying to read more literature and translation lately. So thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. This is fun. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Jane Buxton, and my uh, debut novel came out in 2019. Um, it's called Hollow Kingdom, that it's sort of a humorous, literary, dystopian novel with some fantasy elements and some horror and some nature writing. It is narrated by uh, an American crow named S.T. He is a uh, crow who has been raised uh, by an electrician named Big Jim in the Ravenna neighborhood of Seattle. And he's a crow who sort of really doesn't identify with being a crow since he's been raised by a human. And he loves everything uh, to do with our species. And he's sort of been raised on this steady diet of Cheetos and <laughs> TV, you know, a lot of tr a lot of trash TV, and, and also a lot of uh, educational TV, and so his understanding of our species sort of comes through the filter of this big Jim character, as well as his TV education. And he has this, you know, pretty um, straightforward life, you know, with his uh, owner, Big Jim, and and this bloodhound Dennis that they live with, and then one day something a little off happens to uh, Big Jim. His eyeball kind of rolls out of his head, <laughs> and uh, poor old St thinks, "Ooh, that seems a little off." And so he sort of sets about trying to figure out what happened, and uh, he has to venture out, uh, not just outside of his you know cozy little Ravenna house, but but into the sort of larger world of nature, and and he has to sort of confront some of his identity issues as a, as a crow, as a bird. Um, and it's all about, uh, you know, how he goes about to try and figure out what this malady is that's happening to Big Jim and uh, to ultimately save, uh, save humanity is his goal. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to have you on the show because one of the categories for our annual reading challenge is read a book with non-human characters and Hollow Kingdom is full of them, not just ST and his bloodhound friend Dennis, but lots of other animals. And one of the things that's fun about reading the book is there's all of these amazing facts about animals. I learned about anting, which is this thing that crows do where they rub ants on themselves to make their feathers shiny. Um, how do you make those characters human enough that readers can connect with them, but still maintain their animalness? First of all, I, I feel 
sort of growing up that I read a lot of um, books that were with animal characters. And I, I kind of missed that as an adult. And, you know, this 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 buzzword anthropomorphism, I think people tend to look down on it sometimes or or to, to feel that it might be a little puerile or childish. To me, it was it was daunting to to take on um, writing about animals. I I grew up around them. I, I grew up um abroad. I grew up in Indonesia and Dubai and various places. I was always around a lot of animals. My my first job was at a zoo in Indonesia. I used to run around and have these amazing close encounters with animals. They all have complicated personalities. And, you know, for anybody that lives with an animal, they can tell you pretty quickly what what the, those personality traits are. And I had trepidation, but also a lot of joy in finding those voices and putting them to the page, um, especially for ST, who is, you know, this kind of waggish, saucy little character and who is largely based upon a crow that I know who um, I have befriended and and have, I I spend time with her daily and have done for the past four years. She's a wild crow who lives in my neighborhood. And, um, you know, I I sit with her on the porch and I, I get to see, she comes right up to me and I get to see what her personality is like, you know using those experiences I'd had being close with animals and, and then sort of channeling it into uh, a character and and channeling it into um, voices. So you mentioned just now that you grew up abroad and the city of Seattle is such a huge part of hollow kingdom. There's these pivotal scenes set at like the aquarium and the football stadium, but there's also nods to like a little neighborhood bakery. Um, What made Seattle the right setting for this story? Yeah, I think I have always been sort of hunting for the for the home that might not be where I was born, but but where I could really flourish uh, in and feel like was my my actual home. And I didn't really experience that until I came to the Pacific Northwest. Um, it was really a wonderful experience. I I was living in L.A. at the time and my husband and I came to Seattle um, on a vacation and it was the trees looking at these evergreens and the Douglas firs and the, you know, the Western red cedars, these gorgeous trees. And I turned to him and I said, what do we have to do to live around these trees? Um, and that's not an exaggeration. That is actually why I live here. Uh, <laughs> and fortunately, um, we were able to move here and it just has been a really wonderful fit for me. I, I love it. I love the the wildlife here. I love the people. I love I love everything about it. So, yeah, I definitely think that the book is an absolute love letter to, to Seattle or the Pacific Northwest. So the book follows ST and Dennis pretty closely, but there are interstitial chapters from the point of view of animals kind of all around the world. What made you decide to include those? And do you have a favorite? I think I included them because I'm just so interested in um, what's going on in the natural world and what we can learn and how we can use that to protect it. It was such a joy to include other viewpoints of animals around the world. And I think in part that's to illuminate what's happening because this is a, this is a story of sort of a global um, event that happens to humanity. And so to see what, how the animals are all having a response to this and how that, um, how connected we are uh, to the natural world, you know, not, we often talk about nature as being an abstract or a a sort of separation from who we are, but we're very, it's, we're inextricably linked. And so animals would certainly, if something happened to humanity, have a response, you know, good or bad. Um, And I had so much fun because 
these are animals that, you know, I've had experiences with. It, it's a it's tough to, to pick a favorite because I, I'm so fond of these characters. I'd say Genghis Cat is pretty high up there because mm-hmm. this is a very uh, quintessential arrogant feline um, that might be recognizable, you know, if you live with a cat. And he is based upon a cat that I uh, have had. Um, and so I feel a real sort of fondness for the 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 unapologetic arrogance. <laughs> it's hard to choose. I think it's lovely. And I also feel like ST is such an, an, a loquacious and strong character that it's kind of nice to get a little break from him. <laughs> mm-hmm. So ST's story has kind of this mythic feel to it. He's on a quest. He's helped along the way by these mentors who kind of come into his story briefly and offer him some wisdom or some clues. Uh, he learns some new skills and then he has to discover some things about himself. So I'm wondering if you were inspired by classic myths at all when you were writing it. I definitely think I was inspired by certainly sort of classic fantasy. Um, Mm -hmm. I know, you know, as a child, an early favorite was The Hobbit. Um, I also was influenced by things that I hadn't really realized had made such an impact until very recently. There was a book um, by... John Christopher called Empty World. It's this amazing book about an apocalypse. Um, and it was the first time as a child I read it that I had sort of had some understanding of this concept of human beings, what would happen if something happened and that they, they would no longer be around. I reread it, I want to say a year, year and a half ago. And I was pretty floored by you know, you, you, when you look back on what you've read and see how somehow it's planted little seeds in your mind, it, it's quite magical. There's a wonderful tension in the book between the devastation that humanity has caused. So there's a lot about sort of the environmental degradation and, and um, you know, sort of our addiction to our phones and all of that, but also the amazing things that people have created. ST is so, he has so much admiration for uh, the mofos, as he calls them. Um, he is astonishingly foul mouth as a narrator. Like, I don't know that I've ever read a book with so much like delightful swearing in it, but he's also so tender. Can you talk about navigating that balance? Yeah. Um, that's such a great question. I think that, well, to, to address the swearing first that I talk about this. I mean, I'm asked about this a lot. Why, why was it necessary to have him swear so much? And I think, um, Partly it's, you know, they've done studies about uh, swearing being a sign of higher intelligence. And so <laughs> partly I was sort of feeding into that idea that, you know, the Corvid brain is, is I don't think we've, I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of how intelligent these birds are. I have friends who are um, licensed wildlife rehabilitators who live with crows, which is not something I recommend. Aside from it being illegal, it's, it's a full-time job. <laughs> Imagine like a toddler with wings. Um, and so they have all said, no, definitely this is how they would talk. Swearing would be right. You know, be swearing like sailors. He is a dichotomy. He's, um, he deeply, deeply loves, uh, humanity and everything about our species. And because of how he's raised, he has this very sort of, um, anthropocentric lens on everything. And I think what he symbolizes is hope. And he, he has this sort of unwavering belief that, you know, if he if we can just, you know, find a human and, and they could use that brilliant, brilliant mind, we could change the world. 
And I think there's an element of my hope in that, you know, in balancing that with the environmental degradation and in thinking about, um, you know, what would happen and, and what is happening with with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is a sort of hope that that, yes, that we could use our big, beautiful brains, which in some way, in many ways we are starting to do that. The focus on climate change is very different, even in, since I started talking about this book. Um, so. Yes, that I think is the impetus for the um, for having ST be such a hopeful, you know, human loving bird who believes that we could do anything we put our minds to even save the world. And you have a new book coming out in August. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I do. I do. It is. It's called Feral Creatures and it is the sequel to Hollow Kingdom. Um, It's also written as a standalone, but it is um, very much a continuation of the adventures of ST. Yeah. Coming in August. Very exciting. And then lastly, we always ask, can you tell us what you're reading now? I'm reading this book. It's called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Um, it's nonfiction. It's about fungi. It's about the mycorrhiza. And it's about the fascinating discoveries that uh, Merlin Sheldrake um, and his cohorts have made regarding um, mushrooms and fungi. Do you read a lot of nonfiction? I actually do, um, but almost exclusively about the natural world, which I'm trying to I'm trying to get better at. I'm trying to be more diverse and it not always be about the natural world. I, I did just read um, a wonderful book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, who is a neuroscientist. So um, that was that was so fascinating. Um and I, I had the great privilege of being asked to read um, an early copy of a book called The Music of Bees uh, by Eileen Garvin, which comes out, I think it's out in April, um, but it's a beautiful book. It's a novel and it's a, really a book about um, redemption and uh, finding family and uh, uh, persevering um, and and it also the best part about it is that she Eileen is actually a beekeeper. So it's threaded with all this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous um, information about bees and the way they live and how it kind of, uh, you know, is woven into these characters lives. Lovely book. Highly recommend. Great. Well, we will put that and all of the other titles that we talked about, uh, as well as a link to Hollow Kingdom in the show notes. So thank you so much for being with us today. It was really fun to talk to you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.